Hello, and welcome back to New Recording. I'm your host, Pola. Today, we're back with part two of Narrative Medicine, an episode featuring the incredible and brilliant Evan Walsh. We'll pick back up with a replay of the voice memo he shared and the preceding chat we had. Thanks for tuning back in. A little reminder, too, that each episode of the podcast has an accompanying playlist. The one I collabed on with Evan just dropped, so check that out. Okay, let's drop back into new recording. Thanks for being here. Dude, what a question. What am I looking for? I, I had this moment when I was leaving New York. I went on my roof because that was like a ritual I had. Mm-hmm. It was like really gray. Like it was surrounded by all these gray buildings. So when it was raining, it almost seemed like you were just like in a, a gray mm-hmm. whatever. So my last night in New York, it was thun- it was big thunderstorm and it was kind of far off. And so I was just standing on my roof and I was watching like lightning horizontal across the, the summer sky and I was just kind of like I remember looking turning now I was facing away from Manhattan and then I could see Manhattan from my roof and I just turned towards the World Train Center and my brain was just like holy fuck I didn't get any of the things I came here for like none of it none of it and then I was like I couldn't even remember it was like I had invented this idea of like my whole life I was like escaping this toxic shit and I was gonna move to New York and I was gonna like fall in love and I was gonna like write a book and I was gonna like work and I was gonna like become a writer and like I was just gonna do all these things and then I was like I ended up working at this crazy art job and meeting all these amazing people and then I made amazing friends and then I became really close friends with my mentor but I now none of that was like on the list yeah, yeah. like and all the things that were on the list that I was so convinced would fulfill me that I was still kind of searching for like and I was like oh I'm gonna have I always was like, I'm going to get that big group of gay friends, like, I'm going to have that New York experience where it's like, you know, the eight of us, and we're all, we all live in the same neighborhood, and we, yeah. like, go to out and sit out in the park, and, like, yeah. I would just have this vision that it was going to be all about friendship and love, and, like, it was, but it was really, like, kind of lonely, and it was about work. Yeah. Um, but I needed to be alone, like, I needed three years to, like, process the last seven years of my life and like I I remember when I first got there I was like I just felt invisible like I felt like anywhere I went like you could just see right through me I was Mm -hmm. a reflection of other people Mm -hmm. because I didn't I didn't want to unearth like myself Mm -hmm. so I remember like standing on my roof in New York that day and being like holy shit like what am I looking for Mm -hmm. because I didn't get any of the things that I'm looking for and like I just remember being like, damn, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to figure it out, but like... That's all you can do if you don't, yeah. Yeah, the last month, like, being home, I felt more aligned with, like, myself than I ever have, and it's the first time in my life ever that I'm not beholden to a script. Mm-hmm. As long as I was in that apartment in New York, I would be measuring my life against the dream I had when I yeah. was 18. Yeah. And once I, like... Once COVID hit and I, and mm. life was like, well, you can't do this anymore. You literally have to go. I was suddenly, I literally, I never wrote the script of my life past this point. I feel like I've healed a lot. And now I'm trying to figure out, like, how can I bring that healing to other people mm. who are going through shit? Like, in a very, like, and I feel like Pennsylvania, too. It's like, there's this confluence of, like, all these very conflicting, like, cultures of, like, 
forgotten people in the Poconos who, like, are really sad and their lives are falling apart. And then, like, people in the city who, like, experience immense, like, segregation and poverty. And, like, we're all in this, like, culture war. And I'm like, I just want us all to, like, heal. And I'm like, where do I fit in this picture? And that's what I'm looking for now. So I don't know what that looks like. But I just know that I'm like, if I tell my story and I, like, open up to other people, I find that it, it unlocks things. Wow. Evan just described uh, his voice memo as a monologue, which I think is really fitting, but I love it. First of all, I feel like this memo is so well-suited for new recording because it has all the critical components, you know, mm -hmm. like has the cast of characters, people sort of like interjecting in the background. It's an intimate conversation, like the crackling of the fire. Like yes. it really places the listener there with you. So like, I love I love it. Like without even trying, it, it seems so effortless. You're really able to like weave this narrative about your life. Even when you're asked a really difficult open-ended question of like, what are you looking for? <laughs> and so like were you just like holding all of that in? Is it is it something that I, I mean, it seems like it was obviously something that you were like processing and, and thinking about a lot like mm -hmm. prior prior to that point, right? Were you just like waiting for someone to ask you? Or did did it all just come out in that moment? I it had I had only left New York three weeks before that recording, so mm. I think it was Labor Day weekend, and I had left New York after you know six months in the pandemic. It was August, it was the end of August, and so I left New York around my twenty fifth birthday, and so I think it really was the first time that I stopped to process what had been at my back for those six months when I was asked that question. Mm. Um, it was definitely bubbling in my subconscious, and I was thinking about it, and obviously. I journaled a little bit, but there was just a period of silence in my thinking, my 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 front of conscious thinking, and yeah, it was. I think it was really the first time all of that spilled out in that way, in that framing, um, and that also is something about Aaron, where I'm with him. I, I, there's there's this sense of order to my thoughts and my feelings because I don't have to explain anything to him. He already knows all of the background context, yeah. and so when I speak within that context, it all just kind of flows. And then even on top of that, we were at his mountain house, which is where actually a lot of these traumatic memories are rooted. And so that was actually the one of the first times that I went back um, as a healed person. And so I was completely reorienting myself with the landscape. And the recording is taken in this. His He has a cabin that's in a field. There's no road. So you have to drive on the grass oh to gosh. get to it. And the so, boonies. Yeah, and so you drive through this dirt road, and then you're driving through this meadow, and his house is in a meadow with surrounded by trees, and it's very insulated, and there was just something about the otherness of that place as well. It was so far from that moment on my roof in Brooklyn that mm. I think it was so easy to like look a safe, at it. safe space to be mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm, I'm far away from this now that yeah. I can actually like process it and, and talk about it. Yeah, so on every level there was, I think the ability to step back and see and when I asked that question it was just I just was there all of a sudden yeah and it's it's interesting too to think about like that as like a milestone of reflection of like looking back because now here we are like kind of a year later mm -hmm. and now we're looking back to the looking back I think that's too what why I was drawn just because like I don't know not not that I I am unable to engage completely with like like the content of the, the rest of your conversation and like um 
the things that you went through and um but I think like I'm at a point in my life too where so so much of what you're saying resonates with me as someone who is like and we've talked about this too like in this constant process of like what am I doing where am I going what am I looking for like am I on track and like the sense of like the uh illusory sense of urgency around that mm-hmm. because like obviously like none of us like really have the answers but i'm interested now now that we're looking back to the looking back um would you say that you feel the same as you did then do you feel like you're sort of re-emerging now re-entering now that you're like here 365 days later mm. I feel like I thought in that recording I was at square 20, but I realized now that I was at square one. <laughs> <laughs> That's always how it is. <laughs> you know, me saying that I've healed and that I've processed, of course, two months later, I realized that was very not true because I then moved back home to mm. Pennsylvania. Mm. Um, my Which par- is hard. Yeah, and my parents had lived 30 minutes from where I grew up. So the neighborhood that I moved into, I'd never been in before. I didn't know anything about it, but it was close enough to all of the memories that then I was in them, but the places where they were rooted, I couldn't go to because it was COVID. And I had a lot of physical spaces that I have like trauma memories attached to, but they were all far away but I was still in the suburbs where they happened and so it was this really weird like foreign and familiar experience where mm-hmm. this is all here and so when I got home then of course everything like resurfaced, re- resurfaced. oh yeah. of course of course I, I had a similar experience of moving back home um in the pandemic with my parents and um I don't know I I think that it was it was most interesting and heartbreaking to sort of watch the place that at first presented so much, you know, comfort and familiarity of like, oh, home, like this is like a refuge for me, um, sort of transform into this is not the place that I want to be. This is a place where I feel really um, stagnant. Um and to sort of just like watch that happen and not really realize until I was out of it because I, I think that it was just so cognitively dissonant in my mind to, to view home, even like the word home and, and family to be something that um, was not, I'm not going to say safe, but it was not like, um, it was not good for me. Yeah. Um, it was, it was such a process. So I, I can definitely relate to like all that comes with maybe feeling stuck in the place where, you know, a lot of (laughs) not great things happened. Yeah, home, the word home for me was always so elusive. It was something I craved so badly. So (laughs) it was something I craved so badly at that time. And you hear me in the recording referring back to what we were talking about earlier when I was younger, when I, I really had to invent all these ideas to survive um, and to have something that I was working towards to keep myself motivated to move through all of these really intense traumatic experiences. Um, and, uh, oh, I forgot, I lost my thought. Oh, that's all good. <laughs> um, here, how about we talk about this? Because there's this beautiful moment, my favorite moment in the voice memo where you talk about like this ritual that you have mm-hmm. going to the roof, the storm. And I see that as someone who follows your work, who's a fan, who's a fan <laughs> of EDW Journal. Let them know. Um, I, I noticed this, like, motif of, like, thunder, storms, gray skies. What is with that? Like, what do you think? 
is that something outside of yourself or like coincidence, fate, destiny? Like why, how, where does that theme sort of arise and, and come from? I have a lot of synergy with the elements for sure. I spend a lot of time in the summer in high school going to the mountains, to Aaron's Mountain House and spending a lot of time in the mountains in Poconos outside, like an hour and a half outside of Philly and Appalachia. And some of my most intense memories are of being in the field with Parker and it just, the storms just coming down with random summer thunder and it just mirrored the intensity of how it both felt purifying but also felt very dangerous mm, mm-hmm. of being out in the field in the rain drenched fully in love with this person who was very like all-american boy driving a ford truck <laughs> very um straight out of on earth were briefly gorgeous mm. very mm-hmm. trevor very, I, I i can see it in my mind's eye yeah and i i always it for me like and things never made sense in the sunlight it always was in these altered emotional states of fog or thunder or fire that i felt i could exist and be present um because my life had always been at such an intense roar mm. And so I think now it kind of is a place of comfort because it's a place I learned to really find absolution in. And a, now in a regular sunny day, I feel disordered. <laughs> <laughs> and do you feel like, um, I don't know, when, are you, are you the type of person who like believes in signs? Like mm. if it's raining, like something's coming or like, I don't know. Like, do you listen to that maybe more intuitive part of yourself? Absolutely. I, um, during, here's a really great story about, about, um, something. So I had been, I was in LA in, um, January of 2019 and I was just in a really dark place at the time. I don't, I didn't realize then, but I was in LA and I was there for a week and I was in stories in Echo Park, my first time there. And I was meeting up with my friend Tyler, and before he came, I was journaling, and I I had been in the Poconos the day before. I was driving, and I just had this image of fire in my head. I was driving over the hills, and I just couldn't stop thinking about fire. It was really bizarre. It was a freezing, you know, mid-teens day. gray cloudy foggy and I was just thinking of fire and the next morning I journaled and I pulled out this photo of Parker where he's overlaid it was an accidental double exposure where it's a portrait of him looking off to the side and the film I wound it back and I accidentally overlaid fire over him so the image looks like he's being consumed by fire this was coincidental coincidental it was an accident and I was thinking about that photo, and so I wrote in my journal the day before meeting up with Tyler, I wrote, this is the year of fire. I want to burn away the old memories and have something new emerge from the ashes. And then when I was with Tyler the next day, he goes, do you ever, do you ever think about that photo? Oh, wow. That he, and I said, of, of the, you know, Parker with the, the flames. And I said, oh, Tyler, I literally just wrote about that in my journal. That's so weird. What makes you bring it up? And Tyler was my roommate. And he he's like, I remember the semester you took that photo. And 
it just sticks with me for some reason. And that night it was the lunar eclipse. And that night, um, there was a fire and I woke up the next morning and my dad had sent me a video and the apartment next to Parker's had caught on fire and he was oh on the gosh. news. Oh my gosh. It was my, it was a video of him on the news describing the fire next to his house. Wow. And I literally the, the morning before had invoked <laughs> flames and invoked that picture. And I have in my journal that I actually had put the picture in there and there's a record of it. Um, and yeah, this happened all in the lunar eclipse. And before that, I had I had had a few other ex- traumatic memories with Parker on lunar eclipses. Mm. So there was this weird convergence of elements and this invocation of a purge. And life literally, you know, kind of reflected it back to me that okay, you know, when I saw that video, I hadn't seen him or talked to him in two and a half years. Oh my gosh. And so to get that text from my dad was very triggering because I hadn't even seen his image in a long time. Oh, my gosh. Um, so you haven't, like, connected at all. Because that's another mm-mm. thing that I, that I was going to ask with, like, between, like, you know, he's referenced a lot, obviously, mm-hmm. in your work. And, oh, you know, with any sort of trauma, something that requires reflection, purging, cleansing. Do you ever think about, like, if he... Like, I don't know, I was like checking up on you or like hearing the things or like what that, you know, if he, he might ever like, I don't know, just like if you have like boundaries with him about like if, if he, if there would ever be like a confrontation. He's definitely blocked, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm sure he, I mean, I'm so public. You can see any of my work. You can see any of my writing. You obviously don't need to log into Instagram. Right. He can log out and read my stuff. You can go to my website. It's all there. I, you know, I never put his real name I you know and I, I don't know the degree of permission I have to use this image though I do have the intention of you know I think some of my friends are going to help me try to get a model release from him so we'll see how that goes wow I love it I mean I feel like it's very aligned with the questions ethically around yes. anonymity especially with like a show like this where like some of the voice memos you know I, I never you know, bring into anyone's voice that I don't have permission from. There's mm. like a lot of editing, but you know, you know, you do, you do, you do reference people and with like something that feels really personal to you and maybe personal to someone else being publicized. It just, I don't know. I, I'm, I sometimes think about that. It's like people who, um, I don't know what their reactions might be, particularly people that I don't want to be thinking about anymore. Yeah. I feel like I have a duty to make sense of my experiences because they aren't represented. I mm-hmm. remember seeing on Sex Education, there's actually the exact same plot line um, where, you know, uh, the one character has his prep school bully and then he finds out that he's queer and then they find out they have feelings for each other and then they end up together, of course, because it's woo-woo and, <laughs> you know, it's TV. Yeah. But that's not how it really works, you know. Obviously, Parker had some sort of feelings towards me, and it manifested in violence. Um, but, yeah, I think that was that was the first time I ever saw a storyline like that depicted. You know, I don't think our queer stories are at the level of nuance where they're really reflecting the, the crazy subtleties of our identity experiences. I think we're still in the very temple, 
let's talk about the most obvious, most extreme, most typical. Love Simon. Literally, yeah, and even, you know, even something like Moonlight, which is so incredible, it it's still talking about, you know, the surface level experience of these intersections. And it, it is the most incredible depiction of nuance film that I think there is of queer life, but that's the only of its kind, and I think you could live in that story for 50, 60, 100 hours, and there would be so much unearthed. I think there's just so much narrative that has yet to been told. What um, do you think of, like, the um, tortured artist or, like, tragic artist trope, and do you see yourself making work or telling stories that are, like, divorced from maybe the more, the harder things that you've gone through in life? I don't buy it. <laughs> I don't buy tortured artists. I buy the healed artist. I feel like I make the best work about my past and traumatic experiences when I'm operating from a place of healing and a place, a meditative place. Um, I get into this headspace that feels very grounded and meditative and open and willing to receive inspiration. And so I don't really buy into that codependency. Mm. <laughs> um, because it is really hard to write about experiences and, and retell them. And so I think to do it from a healed place, you're actually, I feel like I can offer more to other people because it's not only about telling the story, but it's also describing the healing and what it feels like to live in a healed, in a healed body or also what it feels like to be in the process of mm. healing and how those sense memories and emotions and, and feeling and feelings, you know, really manifest. Yeah. So getting back to the looking back at looking back, big, <laughs> big cue here. Um, so hearing you talk about what you want out of your life a year ago, um, does that still align with, with how you feel now? It sounds like it might. It does. I think I've definitely slowed the pace. Yeah. I don't feel like you were saying earlier, I don't feel a sense of urgency to do anything. I'm merely trying to survive, <laughs> but in a different way. I'm trying to survive in like a capitalist society. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think I felt a lot of pressure to produce or to really make something meaningful to get in the conversation. And this, if this t year has taught me anything, it, it doesn't really matter. Um, I, if my work Im deeply impacts one person, I think that's great enough for me. Obviously, I would love to impact a lot more people with my work. Um, but I, I'm not in a rush. I think we can't really be in a rush right now. There's too much going on in the world and things are so volatile and unstable. And I really just want to make sure that I'm seeing my friends, taking care of myself, paying my bills. Um, that being said though, I am leaving Pennsylvania in August. I don't know Ooh. where, I don't know where I'm going. I'm staying with Aaron for two months. <laughs> oh which my is... gosh. EBW's uh, next big adventure. Yeah. I hope, I hope we get more um, journal entries from this trip. I think we will. I really <laughs> think we will. Um, but yeah, I don't know the staying with Aaron for two months and that's where the script ends. So, and I think there's a lot of freedom in that. And also it feels good not to have to be tied down to specific place right now. Cause I don't really know where I want to want to be. And I yeah. think that's what I'm going to find out. I love that. So, like, what you describe in telling your story and it unlocking things, um, I feel like that's what we're doing right now. Mm. And so um, I just want to express my gratitude to you for being on. Can you believe we're almost at time? I know. What? The hour just flies by. Um, but I just, Evan, 
thank you for always like encouraging me and validating me in so many ways. Definitely when it comes to making this and, and, and putting myself out there too, but you know, also advocating for me. I feel like you're my role model in a lot of ways. I'm <laughs> like, Evan's always like two steps ahead of me and I'm like right there. Um, so thank you. Always gas you up. Always <laughs> put you on blast. Literally. Always call you out. Oh uh, God. I it's all love. It's, um, I, I feel it. And the love is felt. Um, so I thought we could close every, um, episode of new recording has a playlist that goes mm. along with it. So, with the way our conversation has gone today, are there like two or three songs that you think might be fitting thematically? Mm. One is um, What Shouldn't I Be by Sampha. It's, I think, I have to look into it, but I think it's a song he wrote about his mom having cancer and he was living in the city and mm. he was avoiding going home. Okay. Hello. <laughs> and the song <laughs> I need is, to listen to this. <laughs> the song is about him reflecting on the experience of what does it mean to go home after you've avoided your trauma or the, or the pain? Mm. Um, and I guess the question of what shouldn't I be is him reckoning with, I guess all of the types of people that he could become that maybe he's afraid to become or that he should be or shouldn't be. And it just really, for me, it's the song I've listened to the most of any song. Um, Was it on your Spotify rewind? It was, it was, oh yeah. Was that your number one? Wow. Uh, yeah, it's my number one song of all time over. Oh over, my gosh, like, I wonder what mine is. My number one song last year was kind of whack. Number two, what would I think of for a second song? Maybe it's something to do with like a storm or thunder, rain or fire maybe, or mm. um, like uh, maybe it's a road trip song because of the journey you're about to take. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Let me pull up my Spotify. Wow. My dad just texted me. Good morning, Paula. I hope that in your busyness, you still manage to see the wonderful day we're having. How are you? <laughs> dad. I'm dead. I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready. Oh, okay. Definitely the song Dear April by Frank Ocean. Oh, yeah. Of course. Of course. Because... um. I had been having dreams about Parker the in April of the pandemic, and I had no idea why I hadn't happened in forever. Like in a PTSD kind of way. I, it was like a, a little bit of everything. Like there was there was one memory where we were like on a boat, and like I was like in a room alone, and he was like trying to kiss me, and I was like no, <laughs> and then the boat sank. Oh my gosh! Wow. <laughs> and I, I remember waking up in a total state of anxiety, and I looked at my phone, and Frank had dropped "Dear April," and. It, that was like the darkest moment of the pandemic in New York and April, yeah. When he says, um, like you made me new, you took me through, you woke me up. I the way he says it, it's so pained. And it, it's it's when you say the lyrics, they're really beautiful, but the way he says them is not beautiful. It feels extremely painful. And I think there is something about the way he says it that feels like it is through trauma because he feels like he's being cleansed in a very, like, it feels like he's being cleansed by fire mm -hmm. where it's extremely painful and the newness comes from being forced, it feels like. Um, at least that's how it felt to me at the time. And I remember just lying awake playing the song over and over again at 4 a.m., wondering, like, oh, my God, what what is about to happen? Where Where is my life going? Where is our collective reality going? 
are we going to get through this? Mm. It was, yeah, it was right around the time where we realized it was going to be a long time. And so that song really came to embody not only the pandemic experience, but also my experience of accepting that this really, all these really traumatic things have, have forged me into the person that I am and what it means to pay tribute to that. Um, and I think for Frank, it's seeing a guy across the, the club on the dance floor. <laughs> and April represents that person who really brings it out of you, yeah. um, that transformation. This is going to be a pretty emo playlist, I can tell. It's always emo for me. Always <laughs> Evan, emo. Evan, the emo, emo boy. I love it. Well, thank you again for being here bright and early. If it wasn't clear, we met at 10 a.m. to, to record it because we have work to do. I know we'd really give the context of like Evan and I's uh, relationship, Relation. working relationship, friendship, all of the above. But we had more important things to talk about, so... Um, thanks for joining us. Um, and do you have any final closing thoughts? Send me your voice memos. I want to <laughs> listen. Send, send us your voice memos. <laughs> Email me at Pete. No, I'm just kidding. Hit up, uh, DM me on Instagram. Okay. Signing off. Goodbye.